0: OK, so this is cardiology month. It's not respiratory month. But as you all know, it's ABCs or CABs as it is now. But I really want you guys to get a handle on intubations and RSI. So this lecture really was, uh, I want to I focus on the critical actions to the managing and dominating the airway. But we are not going to touch bit, touch too much on the specifics of RSI, because I assume all of you know, know that, and I think Anwar, maybe about six months ago or nine months ago, maybe it's been longer than that now, <laughs> gave us a lecture on that. So I'm going to talk a little bit about RSI and when RSI is not enough. So no financial disclosures. Here's the case. And Austin, you cannot contribute to the discussion of this case right now. A 65-year-old female took ibuprofen two hours prior to arrival in our emergency department. She has a swollen tongue. She has difficulty breathing. Here are her vital signs. And that's her physical exam. Dr. Tuhi, what would you like to do?
1: First of all, is she
0: actually put her on oxygen. Great. So she actually isn't breathing, so right now I don't. Yet. I'm probably going to because I'm worried her
1: time's getting bigger and she's going to decompensate. But right now, I at least want to throw on some oxygen so I can pre-oxygenate her before
0: I go from there and get a line started. Great.
1: Um, put her on the monitor so I can see what, what, whether that's sinus tack or something else. Mm-hmm. Um, those would be the first thing. Probably get an EKG over. Call the techs. See how long it takes.
0: <laughs> okay. Perfect. So I think you hit the nail on the head and you had mentioned that you are worried that her respiratory status is going to deteriorate, right? That's what I'm hearing from you. You're you're concerned that her difficulty breathing and her swollen tongue may become more swollen and may become an issue. So obviously, the mantra is IVO2 monitor and then show us what the monitor shows if you were taking an oral board exam. But in reality, you're going to do a lot of these things in parallel. You're actually going to get this person, if they're in ED2 or 3 land, you're going to get them somewhere where you can actually monitor them very well. In fact, I'd suggest to put this person in the resuscitation bay. Um, anytime you have anaphylaxis or a question of angioedema, take that very seriously. That's something we can change immediately, hopefully. And if not, she's in the right place. And so we need to at least start thinking about this. So. Absolutely right. We're going to do uh, many of these things, but <clears throat> you spoke about airway. So, what are you going to do specifically about the airway at this moment? I know you said you're going to put her on supplemental oxygen. She's satting pretty well. Does she need supplemental oxygen? Only if I decide I'm an intubator. <laughs> okay, and you're at least thinking about it, right? So, I would say yes. The answer is always yes. If Dr. Langdorf is here, yeah, he says. Right, PO2 500 is better than a PO2 of 100. And mainly, he wants, and he's right. I mean, you want to fill up the boxcars. You want the oxygen to diffuse into the bloodstream and into the plasma so you have a longer time to desaturation in case you cannot get the airway on the first attempt. So yeah, absolutely. Put them on a non-rebreather. Whether or not that's 100% or not, that's debatable in my eyes. I don't think it's really 100%, although... Many of my faculty members will dis- will disagree with me. I think you're probably breathing like 85% oxygen because you're getting some ambient air in there too. Anyways, you're giving more than the usual uh, percentage of oxygen. We'll get back to that case. Let's talk about the objectives here. The obje- objectives of my lecture is to is to teach you on how to prepare to intubate a patient. OK, everyone knows generally. I think uh, in the R2 year, and all of you guys now will probably know, I need to intubate that patient. How do you know? You just know. You just know that person's just not going to make it. And, and so the question really is, that's just, just the tip of the iceberg. You really need to know how to prepare to intubate someone, getting all of the equipment ready and thinking in your mind how you're going to do it. We just skip that step. Or maybe you inherently watch... You, you, you just know it so well that we don't really think about it. But I'd like to hear you guys verbalize what you're about to do and why you're going to do it and, and to prepare for bad things. How to assess for a difficult airway. How many of us here have um, had a difficult airway? That's pretty much everyone. How many people have goosed the airway before, have missed it? All right. And those of you who have not had the opportunity to have missed an airway, you probably haven't done enough. And the ones that you miss are the ones that you really learn from. And there's always a reason behind it. And sometimes they're just really hard. The anatomy is difficult. And maybe 99 out of 100 emergency physicians and anesthesiologists will have missed that airway also. But I bet you the more you do, the better you're going to get at it. And so. And then I want, I want to teach you on how to perform an awake intubation. Dr. Yusefian actually wanted me to talk about this. He's here. He's just <laughs> <laughs> mentally here. So he, wanted, he actually asked me to do this lecture, and uh, we're recording it. He'll, he'll catch up. So um, airway pearls. I want to start with some airway pearls, okay? So little little brain teasers for you guys. So all of this information, most of this information, I didn't make up. I read Ron Walls. I took Ron Walls' course on airway. I I took Ed Levitan's course on airway. I read their books. And I read EM Crit um, podcasts. And through my own personal experience, I kind of blended all of these things together. So this information, most of it I didn't make up. Some of it I did. And I'll tell you the parts that I altered or made uh, on my own. Here's some some statements that I, I hold. To be true, the emergency physician is responsible for airway management for patients in the emergency department. Now, and Dr. Pitts may want to chime in on this. That's just fact now. But, you know, that wasn't the fact 10, 5, 10, 15 years ago where anesthesia and other folks would be there and we are the masters of resuscitation. We are the masters of the airway. So you need to know how to master this procedure for sure. And I, th- I know a lot of folks say emergency physicians are a jack of all trades and master of none. I totally disagree. I think we are the masters of resuscitation. I would every day and twice on Sunday, if I had a sick patient, I would bring him to the ED. Now. We obviously need our colleagues, our specialty colleagues, and we rely on a system that allows us to get them into the right place if they need a catheterization or or appendix removed. But um, remember that we should be the masters uh, of the airway. Any comments, Dr. Pitts?
1: Yeah, there used to be a time when the succinyl colleague was locked up in the operating room. Mm -hmm. It was off limits to anyone Mm -hmm. besides uh, anesthesia. Mm-hmm. And I almost had ho- uh, thrown off hospital staff. Wow. Because I, um, I really kind of bullied the, the nurse into getting me uh, sucks. Yeah. And um, then after that, they kind of eased up a little bit. But it was commonly locked up. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. you guys are in a different age This is
0: really nice. Yeah, I think the Trailblazers really you know, broke ground and did it right and studied it and made sure they were successful so that we could just walk right in. And, and do these things that normally would have taken so much arm twisting. Any patient who requires the establishment of an airway also requires protection of the airway. Okay, I mean, I know it sounds almost circular, but if you need to establish an airway, then you should protect that airway. Really means if you needed two of them, two of them. That's what that means. And this statement, please read over and over again. The gag reflex does not correlate well with airway protection and is of no clinical value when assessing the need for intubation. Do not test the gag reflex on anybody, on any of our patients in our emergency department. If you want to go to Garden Grove Hospital and do that, (laughs) be my guest. (laughs) But do not do that here. Please. It's of no value, and they can puke, and then they can aspirate. So why would you do something that has more harm than good? Right? Does anyone here believe in the gag reflex? I don't even want to see your hand raised. OK, <laughs> acute, Popa, <popa's laughs> right? acute progressive anatomical distortion is a potential time bomb. Intubate early before deterioration occurs. We were talking about that a little bit, Shannon, with our case. If you're thinking about, well, it might, it might not, Tube them. You can extubate them, it's not a big deal, because you're going to get that tube 98, 99% of the time. And in our trauma airways, which technically are all difficult airways, our first and second pass success rate of intubation is astronomically high in our emergency department. So that's really good. We're at the 99, we intubate 99% of people in trauma airways, which are technically the most difficult. So, so be confident, and you have backup. If the anticipated clinical course is one of deterioration, deterioration, intubate early before airway compromise. And this is kind of um, what I was speaking about with the trauma airways. So, if you know, this is the GCS less than 8 intubate kind of theory. This is also for medical patients where you just know they can't keep up that resp- that. that the drive for breathing, and you just can take away their drive. Maybe they're septic. Maybe they just need all of their ATP going towards fighting these bacteria or you know keeping their blood pressure up. So you can take away that demand on the heart and just tube them and let them relax, sedate them, and you know, let them recover from the in- their insult. So that's that. I know we're uh, sometimes we're a little hesitant, but it's all right to intubate someone. And it's okay to extubate someone in the ED too. I think we're not as comfortable extubating people, but we could, especially if someone's intoxicated. You don't really know what's going on. You got to get to the CT scanner. You can tube them and you can extubate them once you figure out what's going on. And then once again, you know me and ABGs—they just are they're like oil and water. I just um, there are very few instances where I really like an ABG, but. Um, if you tubed somebody and then wanted an ABG, I would be all for that. But if you're getting an ABG to decide whether you need to intubate someone, then you, I think you're doing something wrong. That's my personal opinion. Someone can argue against that. I'm sure they will. <coughs> Emergency airway algorithm. OK, here's, here is the gist of my talk. Okay, This is the gist of my talk here. You have an unconscious and unreactive or near-death person. Yes. What are we going (laughs) to (laughs) do? We are going to do a crash. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) (laughs) The answer was gag reflex and ABG. Obviously, they know how to get under my skin. Okay. So the answer is crash airway algorithm. What is a crash airway algorithm, Dr. Ibrahim? Rapid sequence intubation is incorrect. So crash airway algorithm. When they're dead, forget about meds. Is what what we're saying. Just tube them. Now sometimes you may want succinylcholine. Sometimes you may want a lower dose of etomidate or something because they're still kind of awake because they're near death. But if they're just about, you know, about like one foot on the banana peel and another in the coffin, you know, just, just tube them. Just tube them. So you may not need that, okay? And if the crash airway algorithm fails, you go to a failed airway algorithm. And what does that usually mean? Crike, usually, almost like 99% of the time, okay? You can't do this, you better get your crike ready. Of course, if they're dead, you got to do all your other things like chest compressions. All right, if they're not dead, then you have to ask, do they ha- are they? Do you anticipate a difficult airway? What does that mean to you, Doctor Reynard, A difficult airway. It means a uh, guy, huge guy with no neck, with a beard, ah, and vomiting. Very good. <laughs> 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 I like it. You summarize that really well. Good. We'll get into that a little bit later, but you're absolutely right. Those are some various and we have some pictures too, right? So. But if you don't anticipate a difficult airway, then you do RSI. okay? And RSI, if you look at Ron Walls' data from Harvard, it works. And RSI is rapid sequence intubation. For those of you guys, just to remind you, it includes a simultaneous um, use of both a paralytic and uh, a sedative. And so you want to really loosen up the musculature, and you don't want them to remember the event. And, uh, and then you have a pretty high success rate. But uh, once again, if you can't, then you go to your failed airway algorithm. Now, um, the experts say this failure does not occur until when, Dr. Sipe? Uh, like, what is the definition of failure of being able to f- perform RSI and intubating someone? Uh, two failed attempts. Yeah, they say greater than two failed attempts in an experienced hand. So greater than two failed attempts in an experienced hand. What does that really mean? To me that really means an attending, but I know you guys are very good at intubating people, but if you just want your, your top dog there and you want your you want the most experienced hands to actually try and intubate this person. Okay? And if they fail twice, then you move into your failed airway algorithm, which Dr. Swan has told us means a crike. Alright. But If you anticipate a difficult airway, the next question really is you have to go down your difficult airway algorithm. This is where we're going to spend a little bit of time. And hopefully, (laughs) I will speed things up. But um, the difficult airway algorithm. And again, if you fail the difficult airway algorithm, once again, you go back to your crike. Now, how do you identify a difficult airway? And Dr. Reynard was kind enough to tell us that uh, there were some things that he looked for—an obese gentleman with a short neck and a beard. But there's three different ways. If you remember a triangle a thing, you know it's funny how things always come in threes, and you remember them bit, really well for some reason. Educational, like edu. What am I trying to say? Teachers always say things come in three, and you can remember them better. Although I can't even remember what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but so if you have. If you ha- and the way to break this down is if they're difficult to bag and mask, if they're, if they're going to be difficult to tube or dif- difficult to crike, okay? So you've got to kind of remember these three things. Let's break this down just a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> okay? So difficult to bag, mask, ventilate. If you guys learned any skill in here, and I've told you over and over again, is not to learn how to intubate somebody, but to learn how to effectively ventilate somebody. And so, and and we've gone over this numerous times in the past. So I think we're pretty good at this. But the M for moans stands for mask or seal. So what can affect that? Obviously, a beard. And so, if you have a bushy beard, if you have blood on the face or whatnot, that can seriously affect it. You know, the O is for obesity or obstruction. So certainly, if a BMI over 26, uh, pregnant women sometimes in their late uh, third trimester. Redundant tissue, angioedema, hematomas, cancers, all that kind of stuff, those are, those are things. Age, I don't know, this is a little soft call, but at least in Ron Walls' book um, and his lectures, he, he says A is for age, and anyone over 55 tend to have a little bit of loss of muscle tone and some redundant tissue and whatnot. The N is, uh, is no teeth. Um, so uh, if you do find dentures in, in a patient of ours and you're trying to bag them, uh, if their oxygen saturation is low or they're circling the drain and you need to bag them, keep their dentures in. So that kind of keeps all their facial structures nice and intact to hold down um, the mask onto their face. So keep their dentures in until you're ready to intubate them and then remove their dentures because you want everything out of the way when you put your laryngoscope blade in and you move all the soft tissue out of the way. And S is stiff, and what this really means is if they have any pulmonary disease. So if they have ARDS, asthma, COPD, um, acute pulmonary edema, those kind of things are really hard to bag. So you're trying, you're like, whoa, no, I swear, I intubated this person. You're bagging them, it's like, and that's because they have really stiff lungs. So this is the mnemonic to remember, Moans, M-O-N. M-O-A-N-S. It might, a little birdie told me this might be on your quiz. OK. So now let's talk about difficult laryngoscopy and intubation. There is a lemon rule. We're going to go over this rather quickly. But um, you all know the melampati uh, classes here. And uh, so we'll go over that here. And then now you want to look externally. So you want to see, does the patient have kind of abnormal faces, a small mandible, large tongue, a short neck, You know those kind of physical characteristics evaluate have you guys heard of the 332 rule has anyone heard of the 332 rule yeah so you want so the 332 rule very quickly is this right here so you want to take the patient's fingers not your fingers cuz your fingers may be much smaller than the patient's fingers or much larger you take three fingers and generally speaking this is a crude estimation if you can stick three fingers uh, three of the <coughs> patient's fingers in the patient's mouth they have a decent um uh, opening of their oropharynx, and then the the B part of this is a th- is the second third rule, number three rule, and that is the thyromental distance. Uh, that's from the mentum to the hyoid, and then the two here is kind of the distance between the base of the tongue um, and um, and the vocal cords. And really, what this is kind of suggesting is if they're if they're in that three three two rule, then then you're probably going to have um, a decent look at the cords. Yes. How do you see the two before putting this lumenoscope blade in? How do you see the two? Yeah. You is put. This a of, oh. Right here. So this is three. Oh, not looking at. Uh huh. This is three, and this is two. Oh. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, you probably do this. You have you look at a patient and you go, "Wow, I I could intubate any of you guys. You know, I could look at you guys. I, I'm sure I could intubate any of you guys, but you know, some people you're like, whoa." They look like Jabba the Hutt. There's no way you're gonna intubate them. So you're like, oh my goodness, you know, I need to think about. And that's that's getting your gut feeling out and, and giving you a little bit of direction. That's all that all this is doing. Okay. The Emma's melon potty. How do you how do you assess the melon potty, Dr. Morizavi, How do we assess melon potty?
1: Uh, we look inside the mouth and it's space between the uh, uvula and the
0: back of the tongue. So, so here's Dr. Puckett, ask, tell, tell him what you need him to do in, tor- in order to assess melon potty.
1: you
0: open your mouth wide and then... Okay, so you're, you're just about right. Yeah. You basically ask them to open their mouth mind and stick their tongue out as far as you oh, possibly okay. can without saying, ah, okay, without phonating. So, and then you get a scale, and really it's a gross scale that says, wow, I can see the whole uvula, soft palate, hard palate, or boy, I can't see anything except for the base of the uvula. And so then I might be in trouble. If you see this, you got to really think that you are dealing with a difficult airway. Okay, obstruction. Um, obstruction, of course, um, is is something you always have to kind of worry about. But you know, you you want to worry if someone has stridor, um, or you're worried about epiglottitis or or whatnot. And especially in striders patients. Strider usually happens when the airway is less than 10% its normal caliber. So if you're dealing with a straw instead of a garden hose, then you're in trouble. So you kind of think about that. And then neck mobility, of course. You know, we, we have some patients that come to our ED who are uh, immobilized because of trauma, and they're also immobilized because they have rheumatoid arthritis and less likely spo- ankylosing spondylitis. But especially <coughs> rheumatoid arthritis, that's not uncommon to see. So remember, you can't do any of this sniff neck like m- manipulation, even though you're pretty much like you're protecting their C spine, or they're protecting their own C spine. You have to be very careful to do any of this because you could, you know, just crack their cervical spine. All right, and then once, and then the final component of this is if you're at all worried about doing a crike, and you should think about a difficult airway. Like you're like, well, oh, there's no way if I miss this intubation, I'm going to be able to cric this person. And you know, that's if they've had a previous surgery, hematoma. Now these aren't absolute contraindications, but at least it gets you thinking. If they have a hematoma, if they're obese, if they've had radiation, if they have a huge tumor. Um, so. Things to think about when you're assessing this difficult airway. You've all seen this hemoglobin desaturation curve, and this is why we pre-oxygenate folks we know are going to, might need to be intubated, or are you know moderately sick. And so you can see here at um, here's the this is the Sao2, and here is a normal 70 kilogram adult. They kind of desaturate. Under 90, right around the eight-minute mark. That's a lot of time, guys. So I know it doesn't seem like a lot of time, but it's a lot of time. But remember, this isn't usually our patient, right? Our patient is moderately ill, and then you add obesity onto that. Half the time, we're really talking here about you know maybe four minutes, five minutes, and sometimes they don't start even at 95 percent, right? They're starting here at 88 percent. And that's a whole different lecture when they start at 88%, and maybe I'll give it to you um, sometime down the road. (coughs) But the seven Ps of RSI, preparation, right? Always be prepared. So when you guys are entering your R2 realm, the question really is go and make sure, maybe before your shift starts, that someone's supposed to do that for you, but I remember when I was a resident, our job as an R3 was to make sure all the equipment was there. And so I know for sure that I have you know, two airway trays ready to go. I know where the airway box is, and it's not been used up. I know that my glide scope's ready. I know I have bougies available to me, because when when you know what hits the fan, you don't want to be scrambling for that. And we have a lot of help in the ED. We really our nurses are great, our techs are wonderful, and you can lean on them. But when you go out into the real world, that may not be the case. And there may be a time where, boy, that glidescope suddenly is not there, and you're like, what the heck? You know that ultrasound machine is always missing in our department. Someone's got it in ED three, or I don't know, somewhere. <laughs> Pre-oxygenation, pre-treatment. Um, you know, pre-treatment stuff are our low drugs. You guys kind of know a little bit about that. The lidocaine, the opioids, the atropine, defaciculating dose. I don't believe in defasciculating doses or lidocaine for head bleeds, but if someone does, this is the time to kind of start thinking about stuff like that. Your paralysis <laughs> with induction, and this is obviously for RSI, but all of this stuff, Um, If you just include um, sedation here instead of, but you can kind of remember all the steps, all the seven Ps, even if you're going to do an awake intubation. Your protection and positioning, you want to really make sure you're protecting and positioning patients and placement with proof. That means you're actually going to intubate the patient. And then don't forget about this. We oftentimes forget about post intubation manager, you tube them, there's high fives going on, you're like, I'm pretty, I'm going to maybe, oh wait, I got to go discharge this patient in another room, but this is one of the sickest patients in the emergency department, right, you intubated them, and so you need to make sure your tube is in the right place, you need to make sure you tell, give them, give the respiratory therapist some direction, because maybe they have asthma or COPD. I don't know why you tube the person, but the, the, the settings may be slightly different, and this is really, Where you guys should be the leaders in the department. You need to tell me, as an attending, what to do. Okay, BC. I want you to draw up 10 milligrams of atomidate and 160 milligrams of succinylcholine, please. Can you load me a seven and a half ET tube and an eight ET tube? I have the bougie ready. Can and can someone call respiratory therapy, please? I'm going to check the suction. So just talk out loud and get everything prepared. This is this is where you really want to make sure you have everything in place, especially if you haven't done this very often. And if you've done it often enough, we do this kind of out of habit. It's like you know, buckling up when you get into a car. All right, back to our case. So now, we have this 65-year-old who took two ibuprofens two hours prior to arrival into our emergency department. She has a swollen tongue, difficulty breathing. These are vital signs as she arrived. We already kind of mentioned that we were going to get her into a resuscitation bay and we were going to put her on a non-rebreather and consider where our airway equipment is and then we're going to do our difficult airway assessment, right? And immediately we find that her tongue is probably three times the normal size. I've never seen her tongue before, but I'm almost sure it's three times the normal size. And when you ask her to... Open her up her mouth and stick her tongue out. You cannot at all see the base of her uvula. So you're in trouble. And uh, was that the case? We couldn't see her uvula. I don't remember yeah, specifically. Yeah, all you get is a uh, melon no, one for sure. Yeah. What well, four? Four. But four, so yeah. <clears throat> but yes. So you just you couldn't see much. And then she kept. And then what else did we 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 do for her, Dr. Kinney? At what point? Before, like when we were moving her to the resuscitation bay, oh, we did. Great. So we were like hitting her with the kitchen sink in terms of whether this could be a sign of anaphylaxis. We gave her steroids and epi, and we even tried, I think, albuterol at the time. Yeah, and, and right. And, um, and so that didn't really help, and she said she was getting tired. Question
1: for a dumb question. So she's 65 years old. I don't know if she had like cardiac history, but how did you give the epi? Sub-Q. Sub-Q. which Whatever the one is. Yeah. I mean, it's all, it's all
0: like, you know, you have to weigh the pros and cons of any medication you give her. And you will see what we did to her later that would add maybe uh, a little more fuel into the fire when you're talking about the, you know, the the sympathomimetic surge, so. Um, But still, we wanted her airway. Her airway was our major concern. So now we're talking about an awake intubation, right? What is an awake intubation? It's actually, the patient's not really awake. It's just a term that's a historical term. So we want to. what we don't want to do is what? Paralyze this patient. They're breathing on their own, right? So we don't want to paralyze this patient. But we, we know for sure they need plastic between their cords. There's no doubt about that. But we don't want to paralyze them because they're breathing and maintaining their oxygen saturation. So the last thing we want is a cannot intubate, cannot ventilate scenario because that means a crike. and um, you know it's been a long time since I've done a crike. and I know they don't come on too often in RED because we're pretty successful with intubations. But have a strategy, okay? Have a strategy. Think about it. My personal strategy, stra- strategy, <laughs> strategy, my, my personal tragedy strategy is um, the GlideScope. So I use a video assisted. Laryngoscope. I use the GlideScope. I love that thing. I think it's amazing. But there's uh, there's other options. You know, you you can use a, a stylet and, uh, and whatnot. And so you can you you could there's there's fiber optic intubations. You, you know, you you can do a ton of stuff. But but this is but this is a pretty cool strategy. So I am going to simplify the awake intubation for you. Right? How how many people have done an awake intubation? One, two, three, four, Austin. Okay, five. So five people have done awake intubation. They don't come by very often, but I'm going to simplify it for you. Steps for a successful awake intubation. Dry the mouth. Okay, The first thing is you have a ton of secretions in there. You need to dry the mouth. How do you dry the mouth? Suction. Suction. Easy, right? Local anesthesia. You're not going to paralyze them, but you want to make it as comfortable as possible because a human being will protect their airways at all costs, at all costs. You, you dip a baby into the swimming pool, they'll close up. They're not going to swallow that stuff. It's not going to go down their airway. They, most of the time, they, they close up. And so they will protect their airways at all costs. You have to sedate them. Um, it's questionable how much sedation is necessary, but I will tell you my method because I think it works, and I will tell you other people's methods which works for them, but I just like to keep it really simple and using the proper equipment. So dry mouth, glycopyrrolate. What is glycopyrolate? An anticholinergic. 0.2 milligrams, easy. Get one of these vials and give them 0.2 milligrams of glycopyrolate. hopefully 10 minutes before you're about to do any of this stuff. But if you, you, you don't control that, right? You don't have that in your control. You give it to them right away, and you just, when it's time for you to intubate that patient, it's time for you to intubate that patient. And the secretions, you're just going to have to live with. But this takes about 10 minutes or so to get some decent control of the secretions. Suction, suction, suction. Get, you know, if you need two of them, there's going to be a ton of secretions back there. Suction. Nebulized lidocaine. How much? What percentage? Here you go. Five mLs of four percent lidocaine at five liters per minute. Five, five, five. Just think five, 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 and you got it. I mean I know that's a four, but still think five, five, five. five. You you will have that in your brain. Okay? It's easy. Five mLs, four percent lidocaine, five liters per minute. Stick it in there and let them start breathing that stuff in. Say, relax, ma'am, relax. Take some nice deep breaths. Uh, what about using benzocaine spray instead of never-lidocaine You could do that too, absolutely. And you can, you can definitely squirt some, some benzocaine spray in the back. Um, other people have actually talked about, I don't like co- confusing things, um, but if you wanted to do that, you can. Other people say you can take viscous lidocaine um, and gargle it and have them swallow it or spit it out. But um, you know, whatever is your pathway, stick to it and remember it. I just think it's easy this way. The patient doesn't have to do anything. They just like breathe. And they're going to breathe anyways, because that's the the one thing they want to do is breathe. Yeah. All right, sedation. My way of sedating people is ketamine. Of course, ketamine increases secretions and increases the sympathetic surge. So you're like, wow, you have a 65-year-old. You've given them epi already. Now you're giving them ketamine. You're giving them glycopyrrolate? I mean, what are you trying to do? Make their heart rate go to 300? I don't know. But you know, bottom line is I want to control their airway. And can you use a half a dose of Etomidate? Sure. Some people say small aliquots of ketamine. They say, do 10 milligrams at a time, 15 milligrams at a time. Sure, if you want to do that, be my guest. I just feel like that's easier for me. I give them a one milligram per kilogram dose of ketamine. And I push it over a minute or two. They get nice and sedated they're still maintaining their airway, they're breathing on their own, and then I can move on to the next step. Yes, Dr. Yes, Pitts.
1: You know, um, along with saxonylcholine, ketamine is still one of the drugs out in the community that tends to be locked
0: up. Oh, yeah, you yeah. try to
1: give it to little kids sometimes you know, for
0: sedation. Wow, You're fucking Wow. <laughs> that's probably one of the safest drugs <laughs> yeah, out there for sedation. And,
1: um, so one of the things when you get to your new hospitals and wherever you may go yeah. is to start the dialogue about, hey, I'm a fully trained emergency medicine physician, I need access to these these drugs, yeah. do I have access? Yeah. If not, then you start to go through the committee process, which is a pain in the butt, but that's how it works. Yes. And um, and make sure you get access to those drugs.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Scott Weingard of EM Crit likes to use Ketofol, so you can use Ketofol too, but whatever it is, I like use ketamine. And then, and then remember, uh, I wanted to just kind of highlight the use of a GlideScope. I know everyone knows how to use a GlideScope, but I want to just keep it really simple. So it's patient, screen, patient, screen. Okay, just remember that. Patient, screen, patient, screen. What do I mean by that? You look at the patient, you have a GlideScope in your left hand, and you introduce the glidescope right down the middle. It's not sweeping the tongue from right to left. You don't do that because it works a little bit differently. So you go right down the middle, and as you're going down the middle and you, you're kind of getting, you're, you're going right over the tongue, then you go back to the screen and then you're looking at the screen. And then you get your epiglottis in view, and then hopefully you will see the cords at that point. And then you go back to the patient. Why? Because someone's handed you an endotracheal tube or a bougie, and then you're going to make sure you put the bougie down into the oral, pha- pha- oral, pha- oral, pha- oral pharynx. Oral pharynx. Oral pharynx. <laughs> oral pharynx. Wow. <laughs> Anyways, and, uh, and then you go back to the screen, because then you will see the tube, whatever that plastic structure is, getting in um, near the cords. OK? PC. Yes. Um, I just wanna
1: Something. Uh, one time, one the text was able to
0: detach the screen and put on a patient's chest. So oh, yeah, like, yeah, really nice. yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's really nice if, if that helps with your view and whatnot. So, yeah, that, that brings me to the point. You are in charge of this scenario. Do whatever needs to be done in order to make it happen. That's the height of the bed, pillows, you know, whatever you need to make it happen, make it happen. And it's okay to be authoritative in that instance and we will forgive you. I don't think anyone really cares. Everyone just wants direction. And so if you are giving direction in a nice way, people will respond to that. And that's what we want. We have these in our department, mucosal atomizing devices. We used one without the right attachment onto it and you will see a little video clip of this. But this is um Once again, putting your 4% lidocaine, and you can put 4 mLs if you want. But 2 or 3 mLs is all is necessary. So as you have your laryngoscope or your video assisted laryngoscope in there, you're kind of anesthetizing the area right above the trachea and above the cords. And you can actually go in between the cords if you're really, really handy dandy and anesthetize that area to help prevent the coughing and the gagging. Excuse me. So let's take a peek at this. Wait for it. So here's um, Dr. Kinney scissoring the mouth open appropriately. And you'll see that in a second hopefully. Yep, scissor the mouth open. See all that secretion everywhere? He's sliding the GlideScope in. You can see the tongue on the top. There's the epiglottis. Here's the prize. Here's the arytenoids. And you can see the patient's still breathing, right? Patient still breathing, cords moving. They're trying to maintain their, uh, you know, protect their airway, and then you'll see some stuff coming in here, and that is supposed to be our MAD device. And our MAD device, we didn't have the right attachment with it, but um, normally we would want to anesthetize this area and then the cords a little bit, and then maybe even the trachea, and then you'll see. Dr. Kinney, this is really exciting. Actually, this is after one This is after nebulized lidocaine glycopyrrolate um, suction and a milligram per kilogram of ketamine. So she was doing okay. She was gagging a little bit, right, Austin? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she needed a little more ketamine, which we gave her. She was pretty good. She was okay. But you can see here, she does not want this thing to go into her trachea. And she's protecting it. See, the tube comes in the way and it obscures your view a little bit, but he's knocking. See, he's like, knock, 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 knock. <laughs> Who's there? Knock, knock. Who's there? Banana who. Um, so, you know, he's trying. And then we gave her another dose of ketamine here. Now, some people would argue is this the time to give them succinylcholine or completely paralyze them? Maybe, but in case you're tickling this whole area, and what if we don't get the tube through, and you get laryngeal spasm, and you just yeah. and yeah. good, and then she starts coughing and gagging, and then we sedated her more after that. Okay, so how much so, did we give two migs total? One and then 0.5. Yeah, I don't remember in this specific case. But we started with one mg per kg, and and then decided to do another half a milligram. The other thing that we could have done here, which might also be more, um, (coughs) which something that I might want to incorporate the next time we do this, is putting the bougie through, because it's smaller in caliber and diameter, so you can actually, you know, even though she's. Trying to protect her airway, it's easier to slip that through when the cords are moving. It's kind of like when you're doing putt putt and the windmill, you know, thing, and you're trying to get it through, and you're like, <laughs> <laughs> and. it would work with
1: the scope? because it doesn't have that natural
0: curvature, though. I think it still would. I, I think it still would work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see. I'm almost done. So, in summary. In summary, assess for difficult airway using moans, lemon, and short. OK, I know you probably already forgot all those things, but you inherently you kind of will remember it. Just remember if you want to write it down somewhere or you look it up or you're like, oh, what is that again? But just kind of remember, is just at least ask the question, could this be a difficult airway? And then the next question is, do I need to do anything differently? If it's a difficult airway, you could still do RSI. That's OK. you know. But you, at least you have to think about it. You have to think about it. Remember the seven P's to intubation and simplify the awake intubation, okay? My preference is glycopyrrolate, lidocaine, ketamine, the MAD using and lidocaine using the MAD device, and a glidescope, okay? That's just my simple way of doing things.
1: And, BC, one thing you didn't mention is part of your plan was
0: to call EMC as well. Yes. Like, that's digested, yes. Because you're going to be managing yes. the
1: airway, right? So you want someone there that has another pair of hands where. If you know it hits the fan,
0: you know it'll be it. Yeah, out. absolutely. We had we had the crike kit out too, which I forgot to right. mention. We had the crike kit out, and we we didn't quite start prepping the neck, but you know we were a l- concerned enough to have all of those systems in place. So we called ENT, and and they were on their way, and and I was hoping we would get the intubation, and we did. But if not, then I was hoping that we would get the crike. I know it's a little it selfish the, uh, of that. After we I think it was. He he came in, yeah. yeah. All right. Yes?
1: What about um, blind nasal tracheal intubation?
0: Yeah, you know, that's definitely an option, I think, um, for, the, um, for the difficult airway. I have, had, I have had zero experience with that. So and
1: just to pass on uh, from one generation. To yeah. So one of the cool things about nasal trache is that uh, you don't commit yourself to a bad outcome generally, and uh, especially with some of the chronic lung patients need to be intubated, you lay them down, and sometimes that's enough to put them over on their acidosis getting worse, they get to an intractable V fib, and then you have a bad outcome. Mm-hmm. So um, what you can do is um, the position where the airway is open the most is with the head back, right? Mm-hmm. So don't don't it's not like putting it in an NG tube where you have their head down. You want their head back. You leave them sit at a sitting at about forty-five degrees and your little pinky finger is magic. Um, you take the pinky finger, put a glove on it, put a bunch of um, you know, uh, the lidocaine, jelly type lidocaine, and you slip it in their nose, and you find out which side is bigger. And some of side you'd be surprised how you can actually dilate the area pretty well. Six millimeter, um, in an adult, a six millimeter endotracheal tube will pass. Um, and you want to do it kind of gently, so you don't rip, you know, under passageway. And you listen you actually listen to the, put your ear up to the tube, and you can hear them breathing. And as you advance the tube, you know, if you hear the breathing getting louder and louder and louder and all of a sudden it starts getting softer, you know you've gone past it. And then you can try going back and forth. It's amazingly well tolerated. And if you have a chronic lung patient who you know is going to be on a ventilator for a while, nasal trach is a lot better than oral trach because they can eat around it. Believe it or not, <coughs> they, they figure out a way to do it. That might have a good time. But um, it, it is easy. Um, you haven't committed yourself to any drugs. And usually you can talk them through it. And about 50% of the time, it'll just go straight in the mm. first time, just plop. And then another 25% of the time, it will um, go in with just a little bit of a manipulation and you twist it to one way or the other. But that's kind of a, the next step maybe before you stick a knife in their throat. You stick mm-hmm. a knife in the in the neck, I mean, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. So the nasal mm-hmm. trait works well, mm-hmm. and the other plug is I have no financial interest in Ron Wall's course, <laughs> but that should probably be your first CME program. Yeah, so it's intense, and the instructors are superb. Yeah, the scenarios are superb, yeah. and you'll come away feeling.
0: Totally oh yeah, confident. if you get if you guys ever want to spend your stipend on anything, that Ron Wall's course is just absolutely phenomenal, and you will be you'll feel you'll come out of there feeling like you can intubate anything.
1: There's a couple of different... Ron Walls, courses, courses like airway course. Called,
0: I think the airway and the
1: mm-hmm. Air, Make sure it's the one where he's the director. Right. W-A-L-L-S from yeah. Uh, Brigham. Yeah.
0: How long is it? I think it's a two-and-a-half-day course. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, these are your questions. I and
1: I have a comment. You know, a I don't know if you guys had any issues. The past few times I used it, it fogged up again, like,
0: so I think um, a couple of things. We have two GlideScopes. Which one was the one that's fogging up? Because we have one that no, is um, no. the one that's reusable and the one that's mm-hmm. non-reusable. I think the non-reusable one is the one that's fogging up, but I, but you let me know. <coughs> the other thing to do is to turn on the GlideScope and let that. it... You did, okay. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's just condensation in the heat, but we can ask the... Uh, you know the service provider to take a look at it and make sure that you know that there's nothing technically uh, that needs to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. We use the GlideScope in this case and did not have that issue, but we use the non-disposable one. We use so I don't know if it's the disposable one. Did it have that sleeve on it with the plastic sleeve, and it looks like a wand when you take it out? You don't remember?